Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I've just got a lot to dump on our listeners today, so we better make this quick. <laughs> well, quick is not something that's really in our... Well, we don't have a reputation for being quick is what I'm trying to say, but uh, we'll see yeah. what we can do. Uh, also, as usual, for the last uh, couple weeks... We have been given a selection of verses for the Come Follow Me, but uh, because it's us, there's just a lot of other material in the rest of the text that we will not be getting to and would really like to get to. So we're going to do our best to integrate uh, the material that did not make it into the Come Follow Me manual into our lesson on uh, this week's uh, Come Follow Me. But before we go ahead and do that, I just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So again, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, the chapters that we're supposed to cover are 6 through 8, 15, 18, 29 through 30, and 34. So, before we get to that, though, just by way of introduction to the book of uh, Deuteronomy. So, we last left in Numbers. The children of Israel had been forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years because of their fear of the inhabitants of Canaan and their subsequent refusal to take Canaan like they were supposed to. So, 40 years later, after every Israelite of that generation was gone, we're back on the edge of the promised land, ready to take the promised land. And this is where Moses reviews the Lord's covenant and laws that they had received at uh, Mount Sinai with the new generation. He's, revu he's reviewing these commandments with the new generation. So the repetition of the law is... I believe one of the meanings of the word Deuteronomy, I forget what the others are, but repetition of the law is uh, one of the meanings of that word uh, Deuteronomy. And the whole book is uh, structured like the treaties of that day. And I think you'll have something to say today about treaties, right, Derek. Right, talk about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Treaties where a king would spell out the laws, uh, the standards by which uh, uh, he would rule the people of his nation. And uh, God was Israel's ruler, and the people of Israel were their servants, and uh, the standards of that kingdom were spelled out in the covenant made with them at uh, Mount Sinai. So the basic message to this new generation of Israelites seems to be that their choice to obey or disobey God's law, to submit to uh, their ruler or not, would determine the kind of life they would have once they entered Canaan. In fact, the people's obedience to God would be the very thing to bring them the blessings of the covenant that stretched all the way back to, uh, to Abraham. The, the land, uh, the national identity, and a promise bringing blessings to the other nations. So Deuteronomy is primarily a uh, covenantal text through which God tells people that they will bond with them based on their adherence to the covenant of their kingdom. That that seems to be what we got as the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. 
do you have anything you want to add to that just by way of introduction, Derek? Yeah, I have a lot to add, unfortunately. And uh, okay. you'll realize that I'm a lot like Moses because here Moses is essentially saying goodbye to his people. And his goodbye speech is 34 chapters long. So he has the same spirit that I do. Start talking and you get lots and lots of stuff. So we're going to have to deal with that. Now, I was thinking about the the Come Follow Me schedule. We spent over almost three months in Genesis and then one week each on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And even Leviticus only had part of a week, right? It shared it with the last part of Exodus. What I think is it needs to be pointed out is that in Judaism, they read through the Torah liturgically every year so they divide the uh, torah scroll into 52 sections and then every shabbat they read from the torah so they complete a cycle of reading the entire torah within one year so they spend a little bit on each section and i think that's a that's a really good way of doing it we should maybe do that uh uh, something like that where we can spend time on each of these sections But I also wanted to say a couple of things about, um, for you listeners out there, I have to say that James is such an amazing guy. He puts the dude in Deuteronomy. Wow. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I don't have time for jokes. Like I'm so overwhelmed by everything we have to get to. I just need to get to what I need to say. So, um, I want to I want to talk about this this commandment keeping because we're a commandment keeping people and I and, and a covenant keeping people and I think there's healthy and unhealthy ways of approaching commandments like if you look at them as a checklist or if you look at the covenant path as a checklist like I'm going to externally and superficially check off these boxes and then I'm right with the Lord that's not at all what it's about there's internal transformation especially in the command to love the Lord, right? This isn't a, you can't check that off and like you could check off your tithing, like, oh, mm-hmm. I just did it. Mm-hmm. This is an internal transformation that is a way is of life. Implicit, yes. And it's also a communal uh, transformation that's implied. And you can see this when we look at numbers to Deuteronomy. Yeah, like the people needed to change to be prepared for entrance into the promised land. So I wanted to draw upon a scholar named Christine Hayes, and I'm just going to quote a couple of paragraphs from one of her lectures, and she is drawing upon the work of Moshe Weinfeld. So here's what she says. I'm sorry, can you introduce us to what she's talking to us about? Like, what is this about? uh, She's talking to us about... uh, well, she's talking to us about uh, sort of the the connection between Deuteronomy and Exodus, and it. I think she explains it better than I'm going to explain it, so that's okay. why I'm not really explaining what she's saying into, before she says it. So here's what she says. Okay. Weinfeld has argued that Deuteronomy is dependent on the previous traditions of the Pentateuch, that Deuteronomy revises and reforms them according to new ideas its new notion of a centralized cultic worship, and secondly, its humanitarian spirit. Those are two controlling ideologies, he says, that shape its revision of pre-existing material. 
He specifically argues that Deuteronomy is dependent on the E source, the source that some scholars think is pretty hard to isolate or find in the biblical text. But in E, Sinai is referred to as Horeb, and in Deuteronomy, Sinai is also Horeb. The author of Deuteronomy limits the revelation at Sinai to the Decalogue and seems to assert that the full law was given to Moses for the Israelites on the plains of Moab. In Weinfield's view, this means that Deuteronomy, with its revisions, would have been seen would have been presented as and would have been seen as an updated replacement of the old Book of the Covenant rather than its complement. It exists side by side in our text now, but I think in his view, those who promulgated it were understanding it as the updated replacement of the laws of the Book of the Covenant. For the most part, Deuteronomy doesn't really contain much in the way of civil law tends to focus on the moral religious prescriptions, kind of the apodictic law in Israel, and the few civil laws that are there tend to be reworked in line with Deuteronomy's humanity. So, for example, the laws of the tithe, the laws of the seventh-year release of debts, the laws for the release of slaves, the rules for the three festivals, these are all ancient laws. They occur in Exodus, but they appear in Deuteronomy with modifications, modifications about things that concern the Deuteronomists. And some of you have discussed some of these in section. Well, pause. That's part of her uh, part of her lecture. I'm just reading the transcript. Okay. Back to what she says. So in Deuteronomy, the Israelite debt slave comes out of his or her servitude with generous gifts from the owners. This is not something that appears in Exodus. Or as another example, Deuteronomy extends the Covenant Code's prohibition against afflicting a resident alien. In Deuteronomy, there's the insistence that the Israelites must not just refrain from afflicting them, but must love the resident alien. It goes so far as to provide concrete legal benefits, food, and so on for the resident, resident alien. Close quote. So basically she's saying, uh, in my language, she's saying that Deuteronomy is an up dated option three retelling of the book of the covenant which is in exodus so we've got some tweaks and in light of the crashes that happened in numbers with all the rebellion and all that mess we've got an updated retelling that originally may have served according to weinfeld as a replacement but now we get to have both we get to have both versions here in our canon and i think that gives us some richness by which we can see how, how God works line upon line and how we are allowed to tweak and update. And as we experience new things, we can add to it. Very interesting. So that's kind of uh, how she introduces this material in Deuteronomy. And like she, like she says, there are several ways that these are updated in terms of a humanitarian spirit, that you get more generosity, more uh justice more understanding more exceptions more all these other things and she named some of these examples um so that's what i wanted to say there okay and i think that serves as a good uh introduction to the entire book of deuteronomy the second thing i want to talk about is what are called suzerain vassal treaties in the ancient near east and suzerain is spelled s-u-z-e-r-a-i-n and it's cognate with the english word sovereign so the suzerain is the uh, more powerful party in the uh, treaty, and the vassal is the subject. 
party in this treaty. There's also parity treaties where you have sort of treaties among equals in the ancient Near East where you have mm -hmm. two and it's sort of coordinated. But here we have the relationship between a more powerful king uh, or empire and smaller uh, smaller tribes or entities or kingdoms around that king. And the, the rules of the suzerain-vassal treaties are that a suzerain could have more than one vassal. They can have relationships, but a vassal needed to be loyal to only one suzerain. That is one of the key pieces here. So we have a number of texts from the, from the Hittite Empire and from the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and these illustrate the, the biblical uh, concept of covenant very well. A lot of us don't understand what covenant means, but we can look at how these Hittite and Assyrian treaties illuminate that. So here's what Wayne Meeks says. Quote, The covenant the Lord established with Israel at Mount Sinai exhibits striking parallels with Hittite suzerain vassal treaties, which had six basic features. One, a preamble that identifies the suzerain. Two, a historical prologue that recounts the previous relationship between the parties. Three, covenant stipulations to which the vassal must agree. Four, provisions for periodic reading and safekeeping of the covenant. Five, witnesses to the covenant. And six, blessings and curses should the vassal either keep or fail to keep the covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant contains all six of these characteristics. First, Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 5.6 record the preamble that identifies the Lord as the suzerain. I am Adonai, your God. Second, in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 5.6, the Lord reminds the people that he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Third, the covenant stipulations or the requirements for relationship with the Lord, are recorded in Exodus 20, 3-17, and Deuteronomy 5, 7-21, among other places. Fourth, provisions for storing the covenant in the tabernacle and periodically reading it are recorded in several places, Exodus 24, 7, 25, 21, Deuteronomy 10, 5, 31, 10-12. Fifth, the Lord called heaven and earth as witnesses to the covenant, Deuteronomy 4, 26, 30, 19, and 20, 31, 28. Sixth, Deuteronomy records an extensive list of blessings that accompany covenant faithfulness and curses that result from unfaithfulness to the covenant. This is Deuteronomy 27, 11, through 28, 68. In sum, the Sinaitic Covenant was a suzerain-vassal treaty between the Lord and Israel. There is something else I want to add to what Wayne Meeks has said. It, it's this notion of love, because in, in the, both the Hittite and the Assyrian texts, the vassal is expected to love the suzerain. What does that mean? Um, and in its ancient context, this is talking about allegiance and loyalty and financial tribute as well. But we see that this is love is actually a political term that that calls for this faithfulness, and the uh, the Israelites are expected to love the Lord. So, any reactions to all of this? Um, it's a lot uh, at the at the moment. I'm recalling you talking about the suzerain vassal treaties as a way to better understand what a covenant is, and I'm trying to 
take notes as you go. Uh, I definitely see the parallels. Miki explains them quite well, but I'm still piecing together why all this matters, or, or better stated, what gaps may exist in our understanding of covenant that are filled in by this explanation of the uh, uh, the, the Sinaitic covenant as a suzerain vassal treaty. It, it could be what the basis of the covenant is, which highlights our own dependence on Christ, which I understand to be God's leading of the people out of Israel and their subsequent promise of land and protection in exchange for, for their loyalty. There's also what that loyalty looks like, which based on our reading of Leviticus in particular is a command to holiness and a call to ethical living, uh, treating other people right, as it were, like we read back in Leviticus 19. But anyway, like I said, it's it's a lot, and I'd certainly do well to sit with it a little longer, but perhaps there's more to be learned about what, you know, what a covenant looks like and particularly what that looks like uh, to us. Uh, I'm also interested in learning what love as a political act looks like. Are we going to learn a little bit more about that? Yeah, we can talk about that as we get to the Deuteronomy uh, text itself. But I wanted to just name one thing about this, Mm -hmm. and it's that God speaks according to our language. We see this all throughout the DNC, the Bible, the New Testament. God is going to use terminology that people understand. Look at Jesus's parables about the... um, ancient Near East's agrarian environment, right? And look at the endowment ceremony. This is using 19th century Masonic uh, covenant language to teach us something. I, I think we should not be afraid of God meeting us where we are. That's the whole point of, of mortality. That's the way God works, and that's the only way God works is to... Um, to meet us where we are. And I think that's very beautiful rather than saying, oh no, this is all fake because you could find a parallel source that it was drawing upon. Like, no, because when you actually look at the parallels, you can see the contrast. You can see, um, uh, you can see, it, it just, I don't even know how to explain it in parts because I didn't, didn't prepare very well. But you can see that there's something um, higher that resonates with us when you compare the, um, the texts we have with the contemporary parallels. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. But maybe we should start getting into the text of Deuteronomy because this is, is going to be a mess. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, text of Deuteronomy then. Let us go ahead and begin. I don't know if we want to start right from chapter one or if you have anything in chapter one, but uh, I'm probably not going to start to say anything till about chapter three. That's probably where I would like to start briefly and then make my way to chapter four before we get to, I guess it would be chapter six where we can talk about love a little bit more as a political act. Right. I believe that's where, yeah. Yeah, I just want to name one text from... The first chapter, this is verse 17. This is um, uh, Alter's translation. Oh, let me go back to 16. Hear between your brothers, and you shall judge rightly between a man and his brother or his sojourner. You shall recognize no face in judgment. You shall hear out the small person like the great one. 
you shall have no terror for any man, for judgment is God's. And the matter that will be too hard for you, you shall bring forward to me, and I shall hear it. Close quote. Let's talk about this, like, receiving the face. This is to, like... um Oh, I know this person. I'm going to I'm going to like be nice to them and take their side. That's what it means to receive the face. It's a an idiom for um partiality or prejudice or for um uh a miscarriage of justice based on um yeah, I guess the best word is 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 partiality. Okay. So we need to be impartial in our judgment. And notice like the Lord wants us, wants to be accountable, right? Bring stuff to the Lord, right? We should not be afraid to bring hard cases to the Lord and get an answer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Let's move on to, do you have well, anything? Just a brief thing in chapter one, uh, since we're here. We did highlight last week that Moses was overwhelmed by his leadership task and needed help in order to be an effective minister. I just wanted to point out that every tribe got to appoint their own leaders so that every member of the community had someone to go to for a hearing with Moses only handling the most uh, the most difficult cases. So there's an issue of accessibility to be acknowledged there and also of representation too. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Well, let's move on to chapter six. I mean, I covered chapter five a little bit in my introductory material, but chapter five is a recapitulation of the Ten Commandments again mm-hmm. with the prologue that names the Lord and, and sort of setting up these... Um, the parallels to the suzerain vassal treaties. Mm -hmm. Let's go into Deuteronomy chapter 6 and get the Shema. So Shema is the word that gets translated as hear or listen. It is the first word um, in the text here in verse uh, 4 of of chapter 6. So when it says Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that means hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So and then here. it c- continues with, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your might. And these words that I charge you today shall be upon your heart. And then it goes on and talks about how you should remember them and the provisions for retaining these in your mind. And this is the origin of the tefillin uh, and the mezuzah. Have we talked about what those what those are? Uh, mezuzah sounds familiar, but I don't think so. It's been a minute. Okay, so the mezuzah is a scroll of parchment that in which this text is inscribed and placed in a little frame holder thing on doorposts. And then the tefillin are the, the same. Uh, you've got these scrolls of parchment that are literally tied in boxes to the forehead and to the arm of observant Jews who are fulfilling this commandment to tie them to their phylacteries head and arm yeah okay got you so that is uh um that's where this comes from and i just want to emphasize i don't know how if i have anything profound to say about love but this is this is a political act loving god is a political act i i'm concerned about all these people who say oh well liberation theology is evil because that makes jesus into a political messiah first of all um jesus political just means it has to do with our relationships with one another and yes the atonement and the resurrection and jesus 
literally do have implications for how we live with one another. That mm-hmm. I don't, if you want to call that political in an indismissive way, sure. But to mischaracterize liberation theology as some radical misreading of of the biblical record on this is a mistake. We're not saying it's only political or that it's only secular in nature. It's primarily uh, spiritual, but we have to realize that, that salvation is integral. It's about the whole person. It's not just about saving the spirit and who cares what happens to the body. You have to carry about body and soul together because that's who we are. We're in the image of God. And we, compared to the Protestants and Catholics, we actually have an embodied image of God. Right, so mm-hmm. we of all people should should emphasize the body and emphasize the salvation of the body, um, not just in the resurrection, but in this life too. So, h- how dare people say that liberation theology is a is a distortion of of the uh, the biblical understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do? But anyway, um, let's get back to this idea of loving God as um, a covenant way of life. Did you have anything to say about that? Um. Well, first of all, thank you for the uh, the aside about liberation theology. I'll definitely be the first to say that it has valid critiques from uh, womanist scholars like Dolores Williams and Katie Cannon, particularly where ideas of redemptive suffering are concerned. But there is a lot of uh, urgency from folks of a certain hue to uh, dismiss it as something wholly political, uh, racist, detracting from Christ, and you know, otherwise a bastardization of the gospel they think they follow. Definitely. However, a conversation to be had uh, another day. But as far as uh, this particular thing, I I don't have anything particularly profound to say about this either. Just want to highlight that uh, this word Shema is basically Moses calling people to to sit up and take notes because he was about to drop some important knowledge on them. And when he drops the and 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 then he drops the first great commandment on them to love God with all your heart. Uh, soul and strength, followed immediately by the instruction to uh, to teach that to the children and talk about it all the time, not just in church or in whatever formal teaching uh, setting we set aside for it, but all the time. It's a it's a very purposeful approach to the transformation of the Israelites into a holy people and the transference of that lifestyle to the next generation who would need it. Uh, we, we've seen and will continue to see how important it is to get this particular thing right for anyone. But for the children of Israel, this is key to their survival and thriving in the promised land. They have to get this much right. And uh, if they don't, we read about these uh, about the consequences in 13 through 19. The, the Lord can't be with them. They would be destroyed. Moses has to remind them. Uh, not to test God like they tested them at the place of their rebellion, where they demonstrated not love and not faith, but a departure from the God that brought them out of Egypt right back to the gods of Egypt, the gods that enslaved them or enabled their enslaving. Uh, It's a warning to us in this day and age to make sure we're regularly talking about love, teaching love, what it looks like, how it manifests in the people of God, what it requires of us, what responsibilities we have to each other as a result of our covenant with God and their instruction for us to love and how a love for God influences uh, those actions. This is why I'm so vocal about or at least one of the reasons why I'm so vocal about how we treat people on the margins. I, I don't see a people that love God when I see a people insistent that our salvation doesn't concern the welfare of others. 
Even though Christ literally told us our treatment of the least of these would be a difference maker in what side of his we find ourselves on in the last days. I, I, I don't see a people that love God and a people whose faith identity is so intertwined with homophobia that they view queer affirmation as an act of apostasy. I, I worry about us for real because these words are true for us today. Loving God as it was for the Israelites, it's key to our survival and key to our thriving out here, but we're still figuring out what that looks like. We're still figuring out how to do that. And at the moment, there are some you know, brazenly obvious ways in which we are, in which we are failing. And in so doing, we're not keeping our part of the covenant. We're offending our suzerain and inviting destruction. Uh, sorry, I'm a little off topic now. Do you, do you want to bring us I back? I want to bring us back to this language of covenant because when it, when it says love the Lord with all your heart, there's a couple of implications here. One is that this is a, there's a, um, this is supposed to be consensual, and there's a willingness upon and a genuine, actual love. I think if you, if you, that no one should be forced into this covenant, right? It, this treaty needs to be uh, willingly entered from both sides, or else it's not valid. So mm. that just, I just need to name that as well. And I think there's an ex exclusivity here, right? That the Lord is one, and that we shall have no other gods before uh, the Lord, and that we shall love God with all of our heart that our that there that no part of our heart should be loyal to some other uh suzerain right I guess to use this term so yes this is and this gets back into the complicated nature of well, the Lord is a jealous God basically the the Lord wants all of us and not to have our heart divided uh to some other God as well and I think that in the end is um that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm sure I could ramble on for a lot of that, but I'll just leave that there for right now. I want to get into um, the next thing I have is in uh, Deuteronomy 11. Do you have anything before that? Oh, gosh, Deuteronomy 11. Uh, I don't think so, because it's all in the same theme. We've already talked about uh, the covenantal obligations, uh, God's faithfulness, covenant. Uh, this whole thing in 7 is also about treaty, and then... Eight is about wilderness. I don't think this is not going to be anything that I haven't repeated over the last two or three oh, okay. weeks. So let's let's go ahead and go to 11. Okay. And so this is what is called the second paragraph of the Shema. So s several paragraphs are taken uh, from different places and put together into one liturgical piece, which uh, observant Jews recite twice daily. And then the second paragraph of the Shema is taken from uh, chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to look at verses 13 through... Uh, uh, well, here... Basically, verses... Well, 8 through... 8 through 21. Um, where it talks about the... Um, you're going to be crossing into this land of, of uh, milk and honey, and you'll get these rains from heavens and all of these other things, all these blessings. Like I said, these suzerain vassal treaties had blessings and curses attached to them. And so starting in verse 13, we get the uh, the text of the, the, the second paragraph of the Shema. And it shall be, if you indeed heed my commands with which I charge you today, to love the Lord your God and to worship him with all your heart and with all your being, I will give the rain of your land in its season. 
early rains and late, and you shall gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and I will give you grass in your field to your beast, and you shall eat and be sated. Watch yourselves, lest your heart be seduced, and you swerve and worship other gods and bow to them. And the Lord's wrath flare against you, and he hold back the heavens, and there be no rain, and the soil give not its yield, and perish, and you perish swiftly from the goodly land that the Lord is about to give you. Well, I just want to name that, yes, there's the, you can take a sort of a supernaturalistic approach to this and say, well, God's going to artificially punish you uh, through some disconnected, unrelated punishment. But you can also take this in the sense of environmental justice. If we don't do the right thing, the climate will change. If we don't do the right thing and take care of, of the earth and obey God's commandments, it won't work right and we will have problems. And this is true not just environmentally, but also socioeconomically. Like if we don't do things right, we will have supply chain issues. And I'm thinking about the infant formula shortage here in this country, which um, if we had arranged things differently, wouldn't have happened. So uh, if, we, if we don't follow the commandments, if we don't treat one another justly, if we don't treat the environment justly, we will, have, we will run out of food. I mean, this is literally a, a direct um, uh, consequence of mm -hmm. not obeying these commandments is mm -hmm. that we will have problems. I just wanted to name that really quickly. Right. And then I want to bring in the story of Honey the Circle Drawer. And this is coming from the rabbinic materials. You can see the story of Honi the circle drawer in Ta'anit 19a and, and 23a. And let me just summarize the, the story real quickly because I don't have it in front of me. Uh, so there was a drought, major drought in Israel, no rain. And it was uh, no rain during the rain season. So there's like the rainy season and the dry season. And so you know that it's there won't be rain in the dry season, but there was no rain in the rainy season. And Honi, the circle drawer, did something that I consider to be heroic faith. Honi drew a circle on the ground and stood inside this circle and said, God, I am not going to step out of this circle until you make it rain. You have promised us rain. I'm holding you accountable to these commandments, to these promises in the Torah that says you'll give us rain if we do the right thing. So you need to give us rain. Guess what happened? What happened? Well, I want you to guess. It <laughs> do rains. you think it worked? What? I yes. It rained. Of course it rained. Not only did it rain, uh, but but we had some revisions to this. What happened is you had a little bit of a trickle of rain, mm -hmm. and Honey said, "Lord, you know what, God, that's not good enough. We need more rain. I'm not stepping out of this circle until you get it right." And then the Lord uh, flooded and started heavy rains, major compli uh, complicated, too much rain. And then Honey, the circle drawer, said, "Nope, that's too much rain. You need to dial it back and give us a moderate amount of rain." And I, or else I'm not leaving this circle. And then on the third time, the Lord gave the right amount of moderate rain. And so the drought was over. There was rain. There were crops. And like, isn't that amazing? You have this heroic faith. There's this, 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 um, like normal level of faith that just goes along with God. But then there's a heroic level of faith that says, God, I'm going to give you even. I, I I'm going to give. I'm going to give back to you what you first gave to us. 
hold you accountable to these promises. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, a little bit, bit of problem. So Honey the Circle Jar got in trouble with the Sanhedrin for doing this. They're mm-hmm. like, no, what you did was too bold and they were gonna excommunicate him. And then Shimon ben Shetach, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin said, no, don't excommunicate him because he's got a special relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful? Quite. And so he ended up not being excommunicated. But I think people of normal faith will try to excommunicate us who have heroic faith. I'm just going to mm. name that right now. <laughs> right? Like yeah. people aren't going to understand the, the fervor with which I love the Lord and I know the Lord and I'm expecting things from the Lord. And people are just going to say, oh, just whatever. I mean, that, that doesn't work. But you can t- obviously the the whole piece of being LGBT is an underlying uh, thing to this for me, right? Like I expect good things from the Lord's church and from the Lord's servants. Why is that seen as unfaithful? Why is that seen as edgy? Why is that seen as this disloyal? Why is that seen of like, oh, you're you're in league with Satan? Like, no, <laughs> Satan would want us to just relax and chill and give up. I'm yeah. not giving up on the Lord or the Lord's church or the Lord's servants, but I'm expecting the best from them. So mm-hmm. I better stop now because I could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure you could. And I uh, and I know that a lot of our frustration with people who oppose our work generally is that pretty much all of our issues with the church are informed by scripture and our education and our experience and our different identities. Uh, our desires for equity and justice shouldn't threaten anybody, but those things do threaten an unjust power structure that benefits primarily uh, cis straight white men who are not coincidentally our loudest critics. Um, I don't think we've spoken at length about the mindset of such individuals, and perhaps that's a conversation for another day, but I do want to uh, validate your frustration with folks who would say of us that we are in league with Satan for the work we do of validating the marginalized and challenging those structures and trying to center the voices of the marginalized and demanding we live into Christ-like love in a way more consistent with the scriptures that literally validates those same populations. Um, Somewhat related, because this made me think of it, I I do want to go back to Deuteronomy 4 since we didn't get to uh, really address it. Uh, But I was thinking about our responsibility to be a light to the world and what evangelizing should look like or how I'd like it to look compared to how it looks presently. And I came across something that I think is worth talking about. It's in verses uh, five through eight in chapter four, and it talks about one of the purposes of God's uh, statutes and ordinances. It reads, quote, See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, now I teach you statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this, is a, this great nation is a wise and discerning people. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today. Close quote. What the Israelites were given was supposed to make them stand out and show the greatness of their God. And we've spoken a lot about 
what they were given, uh, particularly in Leviticus, when we speak of the uh, law and the command to holiness given to them as a gift, as an invitation to step into holy living and to be more like God and to have a more abundant life. But these things were given, these laws that demand holiness and that are natural outgrowths of love for God. That's the purpose of them, what or one of the purposes of them. What the Israelites were given was supposed to make them a light to the world, thereby making their gift of the law from God their most powerful evangelical witness. It's supposed to be that way today, too. We we often quote St. Francis of Assisi in saying, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. We also see in the New Testament in, uh, in Ephesians 3.10 that the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in Christ as fellow heirs of the Abrahamic promise was also going to be a powerful evangelical witness. So, of course, I'm pondering what this needs to to uh to look like for us today and what things we got to do in order to light the world without a uh, well-intentioned but mostly incomplete social media campaign. Like how we treat the marginalized is definitely an answer in line with what we typically talk about on the show, but my mind is stuck on this thing of what the church needs to become in order to be the kind of light to the world described in in these verses um, uh, back in Deuteronomy, where people talk about how wise and discerning we are because our laws are just and because we are close to God, where our primary form of proselyting is living God's law and letting people flock to the font, like Elder Holland said many years ago in his uh, MTC devotional. And uh, as an aside, when he said missionary work isn't easy and salvation wasn't easy, I I don't think enough of us hear that and think to ourselves that he isn't necessarily talking about the work of being a full-time missionary of like knocking on doors and stuff, though that certainly has its difficulties. Uh, the work isn't easy because being holy isn't easy. Loving God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength isn't easy. The transformative and uh, uncomfortable and, and sacrificial and countercultural ways that the Israelites and now us are called to live, that's not easy, but it is holy and it is just, and it will set us apart. Uh, anyway, that, that's all to, all to say that I feel like the work that we encourage people to do on this show is to encourage people in ways they're not typically encouraged to do so, to live into the gospel that we might be the people we're supposed to be so that the rest of the world could take notice of us and our God and be like, yo, I want a piece of that. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And I think when we have to look at these, um, these questions, uh, about, we have to look at the um, uh, a lot of people. I think I said last week that a partial knowledge of scripture is, it might be in many cases worse than none at all. Oh, absolutely! Because you'll become you'll become uh, overconfident in this narrowness in this narrow reading of this one thing. Yeah. And I see this all the time. One of the biggest complaints in the church against LGBT equality is, oh, you're caving into the world. The world. Or, oh, you're, 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 uh, you're trying to be like the world, or you're trying to be like whatever, right? You're trying to betray God. But there, yeah, there are pieces in the scriptures that say we're not supposed to conform to the world. 
But there are also pieces like the one you just pointed out that says we need to carry ourselves in a way that's sensible to the outsiders so that they know that we're right and want to join us. Mm -hmm. If we have our church infested with homophobia, infested with misogyny, infested with racism, who wants infested that? with classism, who wants that? That is not no. That that it's so it's not about us wanting to conform to the world. It's us wanting to be sensible to the world and be um uh have some sense of validation that would appeal to people on the outside to know mm -hmm. that we're right. Mm -hmm. If we have all this awfulness with us, even the even the outsiders will know we're wrong, right? Right. And so you have you can't just say, oh, it's it's wrong to want to be like the world and, and the LGBT movement is trying to liberalize us and make us like the world. No. I just want to name that the world the secular world, the, the 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 world outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, whether it's Christian or non Christian or or atheist, is not friendly to LGBTs. Look at Hitler. Look at Stalin. Look at Soviet Russia. Look at almost every empire in the twentieth century that was evil, and they hated the gays too. Like mm -hmm. that's the world that we don't want to be like. That's the world that we don't want to be conformed to. This idea that the world is like pro gay, like get out of here with that. For real. Get out of here with that. That It's been awful to gays. And not just the Christian world, but the world outside Christianity too. It's mm -hmm. not okay. And same with, with patriarchy. Patriarchy is a problem around the world, not just in the church. It's So I think wanting to get away from racism, wanting to get away from patriarchy, wanting to get away from homophobia, it's escaping the world. It's not mm -hmm. trying to be like the world. It's trying to escape all that injustice that's part of the mortal world and, mm -hmm. and having a new vision that will draw people and, and will validate us in the in the eyes of outsiders. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of validating us in the eyes of outsiders, let's go to Deuteronomy 15, 15 uh, verses yes. 1 through 11. Let's go. Okay. So I... Um, I probably shouldn't read this. People should probably just read it for themselves and slowly study it, so I'm not going to read it. But it's about making the remission at the end of seven years. It's about not having any poor in the land. It's um, about um, bless, being blessed with these things, um, opening our hand to to our those who are poor, um, not closing our heart to them, Um yeah, so it's it's just great. So, like, let's look at verse. Um, uh, this is verse. Well, this might be verse five in English, but here in the altar, it's verse four. It says, "Yet there will be no pauper among you, for the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is about to give you." Um. So yeah, it's. We have to take care of one another, and there are social and cultural, uh, social and cultural and economic and systemic approaches to this. This isn't just about having a handout, a, a private transaction to take care of the poor when they ask. There mm -hmm. are structural solutions in place, including the liberation of people, their debts after the seventh year, such a, of, of such nature. Right. Mm -hmm. So go and read this and study this. I probably shouldn't talk too much more about it. What do you have to say about this? Uh, not too much, except uh, that this is the countercultural part I was talking about with chapter four. Uh, to speak a little more specifically, the Sabbath year is the year in which debts are canceled, and it sounds like an impossible way to run 
you know, a country's economy, but it was part of God's original plan and uh, will for Israel. God's God's kingdom doesn't run on the uh, same principles that the banker down the street does. And uh, if these principles of generosity were obeyed, the Lord promises not only that there will be no poor among them, but that Israel will lend to and rule other nations, but never borrow money from them or be ruled uh, by them. I also got to say that uh, verses 7 through 9 has some serious Mosiah 4 energy in talking about how we ought to treat the poor and not judge them and give give to them liberally if we have. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that Israel failed to live into these laws and uh, the Lord implemented or sorry, live into the laws that the Lord implemented. And as a result, um, the Lord's warning of being cast out of the land so that the land could actually properly enjoy its Sabbath rests, that did eventually come to pass in the Hebrews, Hebrew Bible's true ending found in uh, Second, Second Chronicles 36. Something, something of a warning, it seems. Right. So I just want to pause for a second and say, by the time of the second temple period, this didn't work out very well because right. people started to do exactly what the Torah warned against. And in the years before the seventh year, the Shemitah year, people started not lending money to the poor. And that was a problem. And it caused great in, it caused more injustice to the poor than it than it had than it would have if they had just lent to the poor and uh and then given the the poor a, a fair chance to pay it back even after the seventh year. Mm-hmm. So um, Rabbi Hillel uh, created a very interesting solution to this. Uh, he created a loophole in the law that allowed people to give interest-free loans to poor people and then have that uh, burden be carried by the community in such a way that it circumvents the... Uh, the, the letter of the law in a way that now it was better for the poor people so that they could get access to money, they could get access to loans, and it was better for the creditors uh, in that they could get their money back. And so um, that's a long detour. Uh, and um, anyway, so I just wanted to name that that is, is uh, uh, goes back to what I was saying is sometimes you have to update the law, sometimes you have to tweak the law, and they were able to find a legal loophole workaround that allowed them to do that. And it's very complicated as to how they're actually able to circumvent this uh, Torah stipulation. But anyway, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just very thankful that we have a a sensibility of, yeah, sometimes this needs updates. Sometimes we need, need more. Sometimes what we have isn't, isn't good enough and we need to ask the Lord for more. I, I want to go on to this uh, provision in Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20 about uh, getting a king when you're in the land. And I want to say a lot of people read the first Samuel 8 story where the people of Israel demand a king from Samuel, and Samuel says, no, that's bad. And then they say, oh, it was wrong of Israel to ask for a king at all. But literally here in the Torah, they're allowed to ask for a king. It says when you get into the land and you ask for a king, this is how you should do it. Like they were allowed to have a king. I think what was wrong was the motivation 
right? To be like the nations around them, to have someone that will lead them into battle, to, to like lower themselves to the surrounding people. Mm-hmm. But the mere act of asking for a king with the right motivation is not wrong. And I think, have you have you heard this when, when people say, oh, if we ask for gay marriage, then the Lord will give it to us, but it will be bad for us because mm-hmm. it will be like when Israel asked for a king. Right, right. You've heard I have this. not heard that. I have not heard that argument actually. Okay, well, I have. People are like, "Oh, you can't if you if you pester the Lord, and He might just let you have it because it's bad, and 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 He'll let you have it anyway." I'm like, "No, it's wrong to use that because the people were literally." Or, let me. I'm not saying that the people did it correctly, but the people could have held God accountable to the promise that's here in Deuteronomy 17 about if you ask for a king, here's how you should do it. And it says very clearly that you need to um, uh, only let him not get himself many horses, that he not turn the people back to Egypt in order to get mm-hmm. horses. And so he should not proliferate <laughs> wives or gold or silver, stuff like that. So it, it says, yes, you can have a king, but you need to put limits on the power of the king. Even though the king mm-hmm. is an authorized and anointed servant of the Lord, there needs to be limits. Right. So I think... Um, yeah, I just wanted to name that. It was not wrong, objectively. It was not wrong of the people of Israel to ask for a king. They were allowed to do that. It's the way they did that and the timing and the why they did that, which means that it was wrong in that way, and that cannot serve as um, as an example for uh, why we shouldn't ask for things today, why it's arrogant to ask for equality for people of color or for... Uh, people of all genders or people of all orientations or anything of that nature. And I want to move on to in chapter 22, verse 5. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox falling on the way and ignore them. You shall surely raise them up with him. Oh, that's not the verse I wanted. Whoops. Um, uh but that's actually important too, right? We need to uh, protect uh, protect animals. There's animal rights. Uh, I'm not saying it's perfect, right, from a modern sense, but we've got these seeds and indications and line upon line the start of, of um, animal rights here in the Torah. But here's what I was going to say. It's in verse 5. There shall not be a man's gear on a woman, and a man shall not wear a woman's garment. For whoever does all these is an abhorrence of the Lord your God. Now, this has been used against trans people. Um, it is used against uh, cross-dressers. It's been used against drag queens, whatever. And I could probably talk a whole hour on this, but I, I shouldn't. Uh, but I just wanted to name that this verse, I think, cannot be used legitimately against trans folks. Um, mm-hmm. Especially in the case of, of binary trans men or binary trans women, it's not a woman wearing man's clothes. It's a trans woman wearing woman's clothes or a trans man wearing man's clothes, right? And for non-binary individuals or for other cases, I don't think the commandment uh, succeeds uh, anyway, the way people are trying to use it. Uh, when you look at Jewish interpretation of this, what it really is uh, t- tended to mean, it doesn't mean just the literal uh, putting on of, of the garments of the other person or the other gender. It is about uh, 
for example, a a man wearing women's clothing to access um, women's spaces in order for sexual immorality, right? See, that's mm-hmm. the problem. Is that is what the uh, many rabbinic commentators have seen, and that gets back to love for God and love for neighbor, right? Just wearing the clothing of the other gender. That, to me, does not violate God, love for God or love for neighbor. It's only when it actually hurts God or hurts neighbor that you have a problem. So I think you mm-hmm. have to contextualize these uh, commandments and see what they're trying to do, see what they're what they're going to do. Um, and they may not be binding the way people thought they are. And also it's the, the hypocrisy of people picking out this this one line they might not know right. any of the rest of Deuteronomy mm-hmm. so it's not springing mm-hmm. out of a genuine sincere wanting to uphold the authority of Deuteronomy it's like oh mm-hmm. i have a gotcha verse mm-hmm. and they don't care mm-hmm. any about the rest of Deuteronomy so i just want to name that maybe at some point um uh we can get into this but but i also want to say there are very few texts in the bible that are even used against trans folks this is mm-hmm. one of them, and it doesn't succeed, and there really aren't that many. There's nothing that in this text that tells people what their gender is or that it's not based on self-testimony, what people know their gender to be, right? There's, uh, there's a, a lot of questions about what a man's garment or a woman's garment is because that's all socially and culturally constructed. Like, there's a big right. mess that people right. want to make. And I um, fortunately don't have, to, unfortunately, I don't have the time to get into that now. But I at least wanted to name that. Sure. That uh, that the uh, the uh, attempt to harm trans folks in the name of the Bible does not work if you actually take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, a similar thing is it, let's yeah. I just wanted to say, like, since this is the second time that this has come up, um, I just wanted to say, and I think it was uh, Aubrey Hendricks that said this, but he said something along the lines of. A study or a reading of our sacred texts without the context is a pretext. Right. And this is something that we encounter a lot, especially when it comes to the oppression or the otherwise otherization of our, you know, our siblings on the margins. Uh, as Derek has already highlighted, this is something that creates right. a big mess that people are not ready to fully address. And, you know, you pointed out the hypocrisy of doing so. Like people will point at these verses, but not point at the rest of Deuteronomy or the rest of the books of Moses that highlight love of God as a way of life and a transformative process, one that is supposed to help us minister, ironically enough, to the other and make sure that everybody is included in ways that, you know, Egypt was not accustomed to including them, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. But like, I just want to make sure that people understand that these efforts to, um, you know, dispossess entire populations of people based on a very narrow reading of text, avoid of context, like this is at, yeah. at, at best, it's an incomplete reading, if not fatally misleading. Like right. the Bible, the, the, right. the, our sacred texts, these are particular texts written to a particular people at a particular time and place to address particular issues. The, the the Bible in particular is a book on point. Like you can't take these things out of their proper context. Otherwise we run the risk of doing violence. Uh, if not, you know, violence at worst and ignorance at our best moments. So I just wanted, like, since that came up again, I just wanted to put that out there for the folks. 
Well, I just also want to name two things. One is people say that, uh, oh, I've heard it said that if you take the text out of its contexts, it leaves you with a con. So that's, <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> Nicely done. I can't remember who said that. Another thing is people, this, oh, this is one of the most abusive things in our, in our tradition is people using the line from our sacred temporal liturgy, the one that says uh, that talks about um, the philosophies of men mingled with Scripture. And a lot of people will accuse us of doing that, right? They'll yeah. say, oh, you're, you're taking critical race theory and mingling with Scripture mm-hmm. um, or whatever. Or you're taking queer theory and mingling with Scripture. But here's one thing that it just takes half a second of familiarity with the scriptures. I guarantee you, if you look at the scriptures for half a second, you will realize that the scriptures come pre-mixed with the philosophies of men. Let me say that again. Sorry to tell you this, sorry to disappoint you, but when you have drunk the scriptures like I have, when you have studied them in their historical context and seen how they've been applied, you realize that they're given according to the language of the time, of the people Mm -hmm. of the time, within Mm -hmm. the biases of the time. Mm -hmm. These scriptures, all of our scriptures come pre-mixed with the philosophies of men. Some of those philosophies of men will include patriarchy and racism, and that's going to be already mixed in our scriptures. Like, I love the scriptures, but I love them enough to name the truth about that. Mm -hmm. So how dare people accuse me of mingling philosophy with the scriptures. I've never even read Marx, okay? I literally have not read Marx. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then people c- accuse me of being a Marxist. I don't know. I mean, maybe people don't. Ac- I don't know what people are saying. But my point is, this uh, this accusing us of, of like mixing. Um, so r- rather than saying that we're mixling, mixing human philosophy with the scripture, people should say, oh, Derek, I see exactly what you're doing. You're likening the scriptures unto yourself. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm reading mm-hmm. it from my context, from my positionality, with my experience, in light of the spirit, in a, in a community that gives me checks and balances on things. I am a faithful reader of the scripture. I'm not trying to mingle it with philosophy. I'm likening it unto myself. And of course, it's going to come out a little different because I'm likening it unto myself. But that's mm-hmm. what we're supposed to do in the restored gospel. Um, I want to move on to uh, chapter 23. Uh, verse 1, this has been used against eunuchs. Um, essentially, no eunuch has a place in the Lord's assembly. Now, that's there, right? But what do we do with that Was is we realize that this is just part 1, right? We've got part 2 in Isaiah 56 that gives a, an honored place for eunuchs. We've got part 3 in Jesus' words in Matthew 19 that also give an honorable uh. place for eunuchs. Yeah. So I just want to name that that nothing of this nature is final. It can always be improved upon by a later prophet, a later um, thinker. And I think uh, we have to acknowledge this tension here in the text. And I think we should be able to be like Isaiah and Jesus and correct our own tradition and, and correct our own prophets. When they've said something in the past that's not right, we can say, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, right? And I and I can go on and on about this as well, but I just wanted to name this. I think this this uh, thing about the eunuchs has also been used against trans women, uh, for obvious reasons. But that's probably one of the few other places that um that gets used against trans folks. 
so what what else do you have? I have a few things in chapter twenty four. Shoot, I should actually probably stop just given time. Uh, if you want to just go through these things real quick, we can probably finish with that. Just because, okay, you know, I'll go through these things real quick. Okay, um, and I won't actually read them read them all. Um, but in in Deuteronomy twenty four seven, we have the prohibition against kidnapping, which I think um, is important in the context of enslavement, right? People trying to dispute as to whether slavery is is allowed by the Bible. There's that conversation, but there's also this idea that you should not kidnap people and and sell them into slavery. That is absolutely clear. Uh, in verse in chapter later on in twenty four, you've got verses fourteen and fifteen about proper wages. Let me just turn to that real quick. Um. Oh yeah. You shall not oppress a poor and needy hired worker from your brothers or from your sojourners who are in your land within your gates. In his day you shall give his wages and the sun shall not set on him for he is poor and his heart counts on it that he shall not call against you to the Lord and there be an offense in you. So there's there's that. Like labor justice is an important part of this. Justice towards the marginalized. You shall not skew the case of a sojourner or an orphan. And you shall not take as pawn a widow's garment. And then there's gleaning in, in 19 through 22 of this chapter. Um, later in on in Deuteronomy 27, verses 18 and 19, you've got... Um, Justice for the marginalized, including those who are blind. Uh, and then in 3019, I just love this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote this real quick. 30 3019. I call to witness for you today the heavens and the earth. Life and death I set before you, the blessing and the curse, and you shall choose life so that you may live, you and your seed. To love the Lord your God, to heed his voice, and to cling to him, for he is your life and your length of days, to dwell on the soil which the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Right here in these two verses, we've got the witnesses, like in the suzerain vassal treaties of, of um, the Hittite and Assyrian texts, we've got the blessings and curses. We've got this idea of loving our suzerain. Um, so all these things get, get tied up together. I want to name one instance of the divine feminine in 32 verse 18. Let me get to that. And some people may see an indication of heavenly mother. Some people may see an indication that God is not completely male, right? That there's this um, stretching of our, our, our understanding of God. Here's what it says. The rock your bearer you neglected. You forgot the God who gave you birth, right? So here we've got this idea of God as mother. God as someone who um, uh, uh, brings us uh, birth. And then probably the last thing I want to mention is Moses' death here at the end of Deuteronomy, oh, that we're not to think too highly of our prophets. I think we need to have realistic and honest approaches Moses was not perfect. The things that he got were not perfect um, at the time they were given. They may have been incomplete or partial. 
um, we see that people underneath corrected him many times and said, hey, look, mm-hmm. what you're not doing is right. Or, hey, look, we're left out, like the, the daughters of Zelophehad or the the men who were on a journey during the, the second anniversary of the Passover. And I think, yeah, that should give us um, a fair approach to, to prophets. And we realize that Moses messed up with the uh, smiting the rock and was excluded from the promised land. Like Moses was not perfect. Prophets are not perfect. And we should just need to name that. And that's probably all I have to say about Deuteronomy. <laughs> for now anyway, or within the time constraints that we got. Yeah, um, for now. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to come back to this at some point. There's a lot that's worth sourcing that we have sourced in the past. So uh, maybe we, we'll get to get to uh, some of the stuff that we didn't get to uh, today. Anyway, if there's nothing else, then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, Before we do, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and also by searching for us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I also want to give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts for the podcast, as well as uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, the social media stuff. And of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, uh, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study helps. Uh, The note the link to the outlines will be in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, the same goes for the transcripts. Is there anything else we need to put the people on to? Any events or anything like that, Derek? Nope. That's it, I think. I hope so. Very good. With that, then, thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Okay. Till we meet again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>